This is a podcast about failure. With me, Lola Berry, author, nutritionist, and yoga teacher. Join me as we get to know these guests and learn about how their failures have ultimately shaped their dreams. Welcome to Fearlessly Failing with Lola Berry. Hello, meet Casey Barros. She's a health journalist and lifestyle reporter, and she has just released her first book. It's called The Bad Girl's Guide to Better. It is a stealth help book, and it kind of like celebrates all of the messy moments in life. It's super relatable. She's funny, she's witty, and you're going to hear in this interview, she walks her own talk. You know, there's no BS. It's just what you see is what you get. I really hope you love this chat with Casey and big congrats, mate, on the brand new book. Casey Barros, I'm getting in there straight (laughs) away. Uh, Total honour to have you on the pod today. We are here to celebrate your brand spanky new book and I like the way you describe it as a stealth help book, not a self-help book. Mm-hmm. I like the way you describe it as spanky. Yeah, bro, well, yeah. That's kind of what it is. Well, I guess it is now that I've <laughs> read it. It's such a fun book, The Bad Girl's Guide to Not Good But Better. Correct. Yeah. Because I'm not being prescriptive about what's good and bad. I don't know what's good and bad for you. I'm just talking about being better. Well, let's talk seriously about the book before we kind of like, I want to talk about you and your career and you've been so much fun to YouTube, might I say. (laughs) Uh, But what I love about this book is it's really personal. Like as I was going through it, I was like, oh, that's happened to me. Oh, my God, that was me. Oh, my God, that was me. Bar the tattoo stuff, I don't have a tattoo, but the tattoo bits made me laugh so much. You got like Japanese symbols. One was at like 15 years old or something. Yes, <laughs> trying to be very tough and very cool. And did it mean desire or something? Yes, cringe, 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 cringe. Then you got a second one. Oh, like you've got yeah. three right now, but you've got another one that meant like love. Uh-huh. But yeah. really it means like... Can you figure out? Okay, so... so Casey's ro- rolling her eyes here. Yeah, so... One of them does mean desire, which is hilarious because I got it when I was 15 and all I had desired at that point was a pony, which I had you bullied got, someone into getting me, like a pony. $200 pony from the knackery. It used to buck me off every 30 seconds. And boobs, which were coming. I didn't have yet, but they were definitely coming. Yeah. So I didn't know the first thing about desire, but I thought it was cool and <laughs> I just wanted to be tough. And I was like, if I inject this black ink under my skin, the world In will a Japanese know how symbol. tough I've never <laughs> been to Japan. Cannot speak a word of Japanese. Did not even like Japanese food at that point in time. (laughs) Uh, And then I got the second one when I was 22 because it takes me a long time to learn things sometimes. I have to do mistakes a few times to really drive them home. Oh, 20s is all about the lessons. Like I figured you and I are pretty similar ages, I feel. What are you? 37. 35. So pretty – because there were so many references and I was like – and I cannot wait to get some of them, but like you were like – you talk about watching Dawson's Creek and I was like, oh, this bitch is similar age to me for sure. <laughs> totally. at, the, at the start, Casey's like, am I allowed to swear? I was like, mate, safe space, go for gold. <laughs> so you can swear as much as you want. Um, there's some stuff that I took from the book that I absolutely love and just simple, like it sounds like no-brainer stuff, like we need to have our own back, right? Mm-hmm. And you, there's a you're like life is a shitload easier when you have your own back. And totally. I think – that's really easy to say, but it's an F-load harder to put into practice and that's what's really, really cool about this book. And, yeah, I, I like the way that you make it very, very, very digestible. So Yeah, that's the aim and I think we all know that there's a big gap between knowing what we should do and actually doing it, right? Like if you take your field, for example, nutrition, most people don't eat the wrong things because they don't know better. Although obviously some of those people are still out there, but most of us know now 
what we should be eating. Like it's less about the education now, more about like practically why, what's the barrier? Why am I not eating well? Why am I not moving my body? Whatever, whatever it is that you're talking about. And so this book for me is, is really like a bestie in a book is how I describe it. Like we would never speak to ourselves in a million years, or we would never speak to our bestie, I I should say, the way that we speak to ourselves in a million years. awful to ourselves. Ah, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That negative self-talk is... Mm. Yeah, that's right. And so it really, it, it, I'm trying to give people practical ways of essentially becoming their own BFF. It's like, you've got to have your own back, not because we're not wired for connection and other people. And I wholeheartedly believe in that from not only a physical health perspective, but from a mental health and a happiness perspective. But you have to be able to like f- have your own back and back yourself. And that's something that I didn't have for a really, really, really long time. And that's why I made so many mistakes and got so much wrong was because I wasn't acting in my own best interests. I didn't value myself. And I think as a female, like it's so easy to do that, like especially in your 20s, like those real like, I call them the lesson years Mm -hmm. where you're like, oh, why did I, why did I just do that? Why am I coming home after that? Like there's... So many cool things I'm excited to talk to you about, but I want to go back to a little bit before the book mm. and I loved seeing you host, I saw you host two different shows. Mm. So you are a health journalist and lifestyle journalist, would you say? Yeah. And beautiful journalist, might I say. So you've trained in journalism, yeah? Yeah. And you figured out pretty quickly, you were like, I really love the health and wellness space. This is my jam. And you pretty... You got to live your dream job pretty like, I don't want to say like straight off the bat, but mm. like, man, I, I, I want to be a TV host. It still hasn't happened for me many years later, you know? Yeah. Do you know what? I actually, um, I got really lucky. And one of the things that I say in the book is that there is not just one way to get to where you want to go. Yeah. And I use this example of a girl that I went to, to high school with and she's now like one of the biggest news readers on Australian television. Yeah. She spent every single school holidays doing work experience at a network in Perth and I was busy being a nuisance on the weekends so <laughs> I didn't quite get there. But obviously as soon as she'd finished school, she did her journalism degree, she was already in with the network and then she just like stepped, basically Mm. stepped into a job reporting and then reading the news and now she's over in Sydney doing that. So like kudos to her for knowing what she wanted so early. But as I said, I wasn't there yet. And so I kind of fell into a journalism degree because I was good at English lit. That was my best subject. Mm -hmm. I didn't really know what I wanted to do. So at one of those career days, we sat down with my teachers and they were like, well, look, she's good at English. So why doesn't she do something like journalism or communications? Mm -hmm. I was like, that sounds good to me. It wasn't a very high threshold to be able to get into the university degree. So I was like, I know I can like kind of coast minimum effort and I should be able to kind of do okay and get in there. And um, I think for me, I went about it a completely different way. So I targeted the one person that I knew that I wanted to learn the most from, which was a guy called Dr. Norman Swan. He was Australia's first medically qualified broadcaster. So he's the first doctor that became a broadcaster, won Walkley Awards, like this incredible, Mm. incredible man and incredible journalist, Mm. uh, an incredible ex-doctor. And well, he's still a doctor, but he doesn't practice as Mm -hmm. a doctor. And so I targeted him. He just happened to be starting a production company. And I started as a production assistant slash making coffee slash anything and everything and fast forward two years and they managed to get a health program up and I was in the right place at the right time. Mm. So I didn't have to compete and audition against a hundred other women to or, or men to get that role. I was lucky enough to be good enough to step into it. So and there was, was that luck. To- was that called Tonic? Was that that? Yes. Oh, there's so many, for people listening, there's some great YouTube clips of you like just looking at different topics and yeah so cool it's so funny that feels like does a it feel billion like billion years ago but do you know what's so interesting about those those segments is that they now exist on something called the tonic direct system which yeah. is in all of the doctor's surgery so if you're oh. ever sitting in a doctor's surgery and there's a screen and there's somebody talking about health often that's still me and I'll How still cool. get like photos from people saying <laughs> like here's you a million years ago talking about this thing but it kind of it shows that a lot of the science really stands the test of time which, you know, I think as consumers in the health sphere, we hear about breakthrough this and scientific breakthrough that. 
but actually the science, like the science actually moves quite slowly. And after 15 years of interviewing experts, the messages that have come through to me as a health journalist again and again and again are largely consistent. And it's not the stuff that sells magazines. Yeah. How <laughs> interesting though, right? Mm-hmm. So then can you talk me through then you became a co-anchor on mm. another health and wellness show that looks so cool, by the way. Yeah, that was the best. That was like the dream. So right before we hit record, you were like, I have one regret about that job. Can you share a little bit about that? Yes. I So I was so nervous, as you know, with anything to do with the media. There's as a, a far greater likelihood that you will be rejected or that yep. something won't go ahead than yep. it go than it going ahead, let alone it being a success. And there's like five people waiting to replace you like 1,000%. in the wings and yep. you're very hyper aware of that. That's right. And I think because my background is in production, I know there's funding and sponsors and networks and you have to fit in with the other hosts of the show. Then you have to be approved by the people that are funding the show. Then mm. you have to be approved by the network. Pending all of that going ahead, you might, might then get to record it. Yeah. And so the regret that that I was alluding to before we started recording is that I didn't celebrate it because I was so scared of it being taken away was the dream and I wouldn't even let anybody talk to me about it. They'd be like, this is so exciting and congratulations and I'd be like, shh, shh, shh. I don't want to jinx it. I don't want to jinx it until I am literally on the air and and even then I know that those things can be taken away so quickly. And so, you know, the day that I found out we were supposed to shoot, I think it was uh, 65 episodes of yeah. that show. So it was a daily show every afternoon. We shot 35 episodes. So we would wow. shoot five episodes a week uh, across two days in Melbourne. I would fly to Melbourne every week, yeah. shoot my five episodes with the beautiful Sam Wood from The Bachelor yeah. and Tiffany Cherry and Bridie O'Donnell, yeah. beautiful doctor and um, and physiotherapist. And uh, I landed back in Sydney on one Wednesday night and I got a call from my agent and it sort of didn't twig as to why she would be calling me at that time. It was kind of late in the day mm. for me to get a call from her, mm. but she would now and again check in and make sure I'd got my flight okay. Mm. So I was standing in the car line in Sydney and I got a message from my husband saying, hey, I'm coming to pick you up. And we had arranged for him, for me just to, to cab at home. So yeah. I was like, oh, that's nice. Like I just thought that he was kind of being his sweet, caring yeah. self and he'll often go over and above for me. And He then sounds my- like a catch, by the way, oh side note. God, side we could note. do 10 po- yeah. podcasts on that man and not scratch the surface of how beautiful he is. I'm yeah. oh, a very lucky girl. Um, and then I got a call from my agent and I answered. I was like, hey, how's it going? I'm kind of like deliriously fulfilled at this point. Yeah. And she was sort of deadpan down the phone and said, I've got like the head of the production company on the other line. The network has cancelled the show. I'm going to patch him in. And and I was like, ha, 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 we had just been told that the show was going to a 40-week run the following year. The network yeah. was happy. The sponsors were happy. Everybody was happy. I was like, oh, my God, this is my dream job yeah. I, and I'm good at it and they're going to let me keep doing it. Like life could not get better. Yeah. And um, so uh, when she didn't laugh back, I was like, oh, my God, this is no joke. And all of a sudden the lines were connected and I had the head of production company and I actually don't really remember much of that phone call other than him saying, this is nothing to do with you, it's nothing to do with your talent, It's we don't know why, it just is what it is. It's just one of those like tough decisions. Today was everybody's last day on set. And didn't they replace it with Judge Judy or something that was just like bought from overseas? Yeah. Oh, dude. I don't know if you know this, but the history of the TV show The Circle had a similar mm, yes, face. Yes. Everybody I and I was their nutritionist, so I go on once a week and do a health segment. And yeah. they the way that the network the way that the, everyone on the show produces everyone found out, cast everything was a Twitter um post. Oh no. Right. And they found out they had one week left and I was on the last episode and it was like such a surreal experience because we're literally all the entire cast and all all us regular guests we were mm. all there talking down the barrel everyone's like and the EP is like doing a big thank you down the barrel of the camera and it just went to snow 
like fully cut. Yeah. Wow. So when I was reading this story of yours, I was like, man, I don't, I think we don't realize like, for people listening, like one of my dreams is to be a TV host and especially like that kind of like co-anchoring mm-hmm. or variety talk. I love it. Like it fully time stops for me. I'm like, that's purpose right there. Like I yeah. know that feeling. You're really good at it, by the way. But I can relate to that feeling that you talk about of like, yes, I'm, I love this thing. I get to do this thing that not only I love, but other people are enjoying me doing it. Like it's this really, it's like full fulfillment. Yeah. And, yeah, I could really, really relate to you, but it made me realise, holy shit, like for that to even go ahead, or like you said, it's like you're against so many odds. Like I can't, I reckon I've shot 13 pilots that were so much fun, but they've never seen the light of day. Mm-hmm. And I went through the same audition process that you talk about in the book where mm-hmm. you're like, I had to try with different co-hosts, I had to do callbacks, different auditions, self-tapes. Like I've done all those processes and it's every time you do it, you feel like you're putting your heart on the line. Mm-hmm. And so I can only imagine, and it sounds like your husband was such a legend, like put you in a bath, poured you a glass of wine, jumped in the bath, like Mm -hmm. what a hero. I know, and he'd bought two bottles of my favourite wine just in case I wanted to drown in it rather than just have a glass. And I think I honestly had one glass and like cried myself to sleep. I couldn't speak. And I wish I could say that I woke up the next day, like dust myself off, like here we go on to the next. But I did. it took me honestly, like I still feel a bit emotional talking about it now. It took me years to get over. And of course now, like hindsight's a beautiful thing. I can look back and go, oh my God, I learned so many lessons Mm. and I met these amazing people. And probably the best gift that it delivered is if I get another opportunity like that, you won't be able to stop me because I know that I can do that job. I know that I'm really good at that job. And I would let myself enjoy it a bit more. Yeah. Like I held myself back from from enjoying it and loving it. I put so much pressure on myself. I get so nervous. I wouldn't sleep. Like, yeah. and it just, I don't know. Sometimes this is a really crazy, stupid career that we've both picked for ourselves. Like, I think what a lot of people see when they look in at your life or my life, they see you publishing your books, you going and achieving X, Y, and Z, your podcast doing this. They don't see the 13 pilots that haven't been picked up and the nights that you cried yourself to sleep because your show got cancelled or the pilot didn't get picked up. Mm. And so I think it's really important that we can harness and articulate those stories because... I know for me, there feels like it feels like the hugest gap between where I am and where I want to be and where that person is and where they want to be. Like yeah. it's all subjective, right? Totally. Do you ever do you, I you seem to have such a good sense of self-awareness uh in through reading the book but also just sitting with you now. This is mm. so everyone listening this is the first time we've met. It is. Uh do you ever, did you ever have imposter syndrome oh my like God, at the beginning the of that as well? Like because you're literally living your dream job and you're like, oh, my God, like am I meant to? I remember when I was auditioning to co-anchor a seven show and it never got greenlit or anything and the girls they put me against because they it was a male and female co-host and so you'd all kind of like audition against each other. And I loved the girls and knew them but I was like, oh, they're so much better than me. Why am I even getting a look in? Like I noticed that. Yeah imposter syndrome thing is very real. It is. And here's how I have learned to manage that. And I can give you another example, actually. So I recently got asked to screen test for another show, very similar to the one, and it's actually already on the air. So it would be stepping into a role that's already on the air. And I was like 409 weeks pregnant at the time. I was only (laughs) just allowed to fly down for the screen test. And I was saying to my agent, they're never going to choose me for this because there's already somebody on the panel who has almost the same credentials as me. So if I put my producer hat on, why would they bring another string to the bow that's the same as another? So I think we take all of that stuff really personally, Mm. but actually it has nothing to do with you. Like we said, it's about networks and brands and sponsors and timing and how you vibe with the other person and whether they're already locked in before you're locked in. And I think that goes with not just people in our industry, but in any industry. It's all about like the stars kind of have to align, right? And one thing like I want you to remember is like human essence. So you might have the same credentials, not to be giving you like a Lola 101 here, but (laughs) you might have the same credentials as someone else on that panel, 
but they don't have the same human essence as you and that magic and that and that spark because totally. that's what the audience connects to. But that's also what makes it your passion. Yeah, and I I think you're totally right. And that was the reason that I was able to go down. Yeah. And and you know, as I'm getting older, I've got a little bit more of a like, well, fuck it, let's just have a go. Yeah, it'll happen or it won't. And I'm really good at seeing the silver lining now. So and the silver lining of that is I got in front of them. I didn't. Yeah. I did a. I did a good enough job. And okay, so maybe the fit isn't quite right for right now. But maybe they'll have another show in a year, or somebody else will leave from the panel in a year, and then there will be room for me. Like, and also, I kind of excuse the terminology, but I kind of shit my pants every time I do something like that. Like I feel oh, really yeah. nervous. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think throwing yourself in the deep end like that is only ever a good thing. Well, I was about to say you're flexing that muscle whether totally. you get the job or not. You're getting used to sitting in that feeling of, oh, my God, I love this even though it scares me. And I feel like that's got to be awesome, right? Yeah, 100%. Because I think that every single thing that you do leads, leads sets you up for something else. Definitely, definitely. And that's what comes with, I think, being in your 30s and having perspective and looking back. Like for me, when I didn't get that co-hosting job, I was petrified of auto cue, which I feel like you'd be a gun at. Actually, Tonic, I had no auto cue. Really? None. And I remember my first segment that I had to to deliver was about Helicobacter pylori. Yeah, yeah, So yeah, this yeah. bacteria that yeah. kind of like lives in your body, but yeah. like for some people it's really bad. And anyway, and I remember I was like practicing, 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 practicing this word so that I would get it right and not sound like an idiot. But so I've kind of had it. And in actual fact, I didn't have it for everyday health either. You didn't have an auto Nah. So there oh, you go. None man. of us did. Which actually is the world's best training. I think because it's so much more fun without an auto cue, isn't it? Do you know I went to these auditions and I learnt the lines because I was so scared of the auto cue. And as soon as I sat down, they're like, "Oh, Tim, Lola, we're switching your lines." So I'd learnt all of his. Oh man! But what a gift! Like it taught me like you over prepared the wrong skill, and that's when I went into acting training. But this podcast is about you, my friend. I do want to say one more thing about myself. Is your yes. alter ego called Lola? Yes, I was going <laughs> to ask you. That's so funny. And I, do you know what's so weird is that I always, I only made that connection like a couple of days ago. I was like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. <laughs> She's interviewing me and that's the name of my so alter ego. So it's like two pages into the book, you introduce us to Lola, Lola, your alter ego. And I was like, and you describe her as like a Harley Quinn uh-huh. style. Um, yeah, she's a psychopath. Wild child. I was like, I have to ask. <laughs> <laughs> so that came from, my mum was going to call me Lola. It was either Lola, Paris or Casey. Oh, and nice combo. Yeah. And when I felt like I needed to separate some of the things that I did as a younger person from who I am as a person. And so I I don't know why, but that name just kind of kept coming to me. It felt, she felt kind of sassy and naughty and fun. And that's essentially who that alter ego is. She just unfortunately takes things too far sometimes, which would always get me into trouble. And for people listening, if you read the book, you get to hear the funniest stories. Like you (laughs) lost your V plates listening to Tupac. Yeah. Keep your head up. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) too good oh my god honestly what was I thinking when we were talking beforehand and you were telling me about how you lost yours to someone that you loved I I felt a little flicker of jealousy I was like I mean I love Tupac but I definitely (laughs) didn't love the guy (laughs) I thought I probably thought I did the Tupac story is fantastic and that's what I do love uh, is that you've got this like hilarious tone but you can touch on really heavy issues as well like you talk a lot about mental health stuff and mm. about anxiety uh there's sexual abuse stuff in there you really cover um so, and you talk about like grit like the grief chapter like as uncomfortable as it was to read I could not read it so mm. you've got a beautiful way of like articulating but also like laughing yourself along the way. So well yeah, done thank on that. You. Um, I've got a few random things that I love from the book. But first yes. of all, I grew up, and this is how I figured out we were a similar age, watching Gossip Girl mm-hmm. and just thinking I want to be Blake Lively. And then, of course, when she starts dating Ryan Reynolds, I'm like, well, I better be Blake Lively because he's a catch. Oh, my God, the world's hottest man. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and they're so much fun to watch on Instagram. I don't know if Aren't you watch. They? Oh, 
But could a, she get any cooler? There's literally a, a paragraph in your book where you're like, why isn't my life like Blake Lively? Can you share a little bit about one, that, yes. but also like Blake Lively? She's okay. Awesome. So one of the lists that I give you is stupid shit to stop worrying about. That's <laughs> yeah. what it's called. Yeah. And one of them is why you didn't grow up to be Blake Lively. And it, it doesn't like insert any name insert any name here. It might be Kylie Jenner or Kim Kardashian or mm, anyone. Margot Robbie. Yes, exactly. Um, Or somebody completely unrelated to entertainment, somebody in sport, whatever. Yeah. Just your hero. And I think we spend so much time kind of comparing ourselves against these people that we see as our heroes. And I think that that there's something really healthy about that. We can borrow things that we watch them do. Like I talk a lot about modelling the masters, for example. What have they done so well that's made them so successful in my field? But I think the problem with that is that we forget that there's only one person that gets to be Blake. And like, she's so hot, that bitch. Honestly, to be like <laughs> hot and smart and cool and married that hair, to Ryan Reynolds, stop. That hair, that style. Seriously. And she seems so nice. I know. And she's like, obviously, she's physically beautiful, but she just seems cool and lovely and generous and generous of spirit. And yeah. I just I just don't have enough good things to say about her and have never met the girl in my entire yeah. life. But from the outset, that's how it seems. But we forget that, like, only Blake gets to be Blake. Yeah. So, like, I need to focus on being the best version of myself and I love that Dr. Seuss quote. I'll probably get it wrong, but it's something like, um, today it's true, there's no, like, there's yeah. no one alive that is you than you yes, or something. Yes. And it's so true. It's like the second that I learned to except that there is a couple of different versions of me. So, And I was trying to keep them separate. There was Casey Barros, serious health journalist, talks on the ABC, works for Dr. Norman Swan, very serious about her career, talks about serious things. And like the Casey Barros doing shots and the worm at the pub on Saturday night and having a really, really good time. And this book is the culmination of those two things coming together. And without sounding like over the top about it, it has been so cathartic for me to weave and blend those two pieces of myself mm. together. This is the first time in my career that I can put this forward and say, I'm a kick-ass health journalist and I know exactly what I'm talking about. I interview the right people. I understand the evidence and I'm communicating it to you because I know that it has value. However, here are some of my personal stories for context. And mm. to be able to do that for young women in a way that feels like a bit of a lighthouse on a dark and lonely mm. night. Like growing up is tough. It's mm. really hard. I still find it hard now and I'm 37. Like we all need something to hold our hand and let us know that we are not alone and that everything is going to be okay and that's what I hope that this yeah. book does. Yeah, and you don't need to hope because I know that it will. So I don't even question that for a second. I love the way you write about overthinking, worry, mm. anxiety, that hamster wheel kind of like thoughts and you've got um, and I wrote these down because I was like, oh, my God, so good. Eight vital steps to moving past something. Mm-hmm. I love it. Casey's opening her notes up as well to as the we section speak this. that says "fuck it, bucket." Right, <laughs> and it's just so like about like overthinking, over worrying. Because like I'll do that thing where I meet someone, I'll be like, "Oh my god, I just said the wrong thing." Oh my god, and I'll think about it for like three days straight, like on full blown repeat. And my boyfriend's like, "Calm the fuck down." <laughs> they would have never even thought that. They would ne- that thought would never even gone into their mind. And you touch on too, you're like most people are in their own story and in oh their God. own. Yeah, so give us a little um, list on your, you've got a, such a good list there. So this section is called, um, or, or what rather what it will teach you is how to chuck it in the fuck it bucket and move on. Mm. So I think that kind of hamster wheel and that rumination that you're talking about is something that, that most of us do, but particularly people with a propensity for anxiety or real worry warts, if you will, of which I am absolutely one, we tend to do it more. And as you say, like you kind of have no control over the outcome. You'll probably never know whether that person thought anything of that stupid thing that you said. Or in in fact, even if that's how you said it. Yes. (laughs) Like you said, things are subjective. Exactly. So I talk about eight vital steps that I believe help you move on when you think you've done something silly. So the first one is stop judging yourself so harshly, which is that if you are a human being, you are going to fuck things up frequently. Welcome to the club. (laughs) We're all here. Literally every single person you have ever met. So like just stop being so tough on yourself about it. Number two is 
is separate what you've done from who you are. They are not the same thing. Your behaviour is not who you are in your spirit. And so we have to learn to separate those two things Mm because they are not one and the same. Then one of my favourites is number three. So it's asking yourself whether the punishment is worth the crime. So if you did something stupid five years ago and you're still beating yourself up for it today, are we done yet? Like how much longer do you need to punish yourself for in order for you to be able to move forward? Because I would hazard a guess that most people would say that even if they punish themselves forever in their head, that they still wouldn't feel like they could move on. So like, let's cut our losses and move forward. Number four is find the positive. There is almost always a silver lining, which is usually that you learned something. Maybe it's that you learned to stop being a dickhead. (laughs) That was what I learned from lots of my mistakes, although they took me a few times. Um, But also I think they give you incredible empathy for other people who've done stupid things. And that in itself is a bit of a gift. I always say that my friends are always the one that come to me when they've done something really dumb because I've usually done something worse and they know that I will never, ever judge them. There is nothing that they could come to me with that I would say like, oh, God, like you're cut from my life because like who am I to judge their behaviours? I've done plenty, made plenty of mistakes myself. We need to let ourselves and our people off the hook for that. Totally. Number five is rewrite the script. So I think we often forget that we have the opportunity to change how we feel about something moving forward. Even if we've run the hamster wheel, as you say, a million times, we actually get to choose each and every day. So really thinking about the way that we talk to ourselves about something in particular, a mistake that we made, for example, I think that we need to remember that we're allowed to change that. And then it's about apologising. So, and I'm not talking necessarily about picking up the phone and apologising to someone. It might just be apologising to yourself. Mm. Hey, I'm sorry that I let you down three years ago when you did that stupid thing. I was doing the best with what I had at the time. Write them a letter and burn it. Like say it out loud, but not necessarily to them. Don't get me wrong. Sometimes apologising to someone is the right thing to do, but sometimes you just need to apologise to yourself and maybe to the universe. It doesn't always have to be like sometimes secrets and mistakes have the capacity to blow up people's lives in a way that honestly, sometimes what we don't know is like won't hurt us. So I think on an individual level, we have to make that call. But I think even just verbalizing it, writing it down or saying it out loud, I think that 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 definitely, definitely helps because it gets like out of your head and your heart and just out into the ether. Mm. And then talk. You need to talk to someone. And I think, you know, Brene Brown's work is famous for talking about vulnerability and shame. And um, I love everything that she does. But one of the things that she says is be really careful about who you choose to share with, like choose to share with somebody who deserves to hear it. And that can be somebody who is your best friend or somebody that you know well and you trust them implicitly. But it can also be a paid professional. I was going to say, that would be my therapist. Oh, my God. I do not have enough good things to say about therapy. Like Mm. therapy saved my life Mm. and continues to save my life. Um, I've had therapy for like 15 years and will probably have it for the rest of my life. So it doesn't have to be a friend necessarily. You can keep those two things completely separate if you want to. And then the last one, number eight, is break the habit. And that's not break the habit of doing the stupid thing, though that's probably advisable so that you don't (laughs) feel like this moving forward. But it's about breaking the habit of the memory. So one of the things we know about secrets is that the most damaging thing about them is not the actual act of concealing the secret in the first place, but how frequently you think about it. Mm. So when you're standing there washing the dishes and that stupid thing pops up for you again and again and again, it's like you're hiding something, even if it's only from yourself, and that has the capacity to really derail us in terms of our happiness. So accepting when it pops up, like, yep, okay, there it is again, and Mm. just like letting it go because you can't click your fingers and make those things stop. Totally, and there's a lot of, like, um, uh, writers, like I think Dr. Ross Harris writes about, like, hey, I'm having this thought. It's a bit like how you're saying that's not necessarily who you are. It's just a thought that you're having, and he talks a lot about that with mindfulness practice. Mm. I love, and I feel like this is, like, a continuation. You talk about allocating designated worry time. Oh, yeah. I hadn't thought about this until I'd read it in your book. I think it's such a great idea. And like, we are going to worry. We are going to think about things probably more than we should. But if you give yourself this little window to feel it, Mm -hmm. to kind of obsess over it, if you need to, like, let yourself do that. Yes. And then be like, and done. That's 
that's that quota done. Totally, time. because I think anybody listening will know what it's like to be at work and you can't for the life of you focus on the thing that you're supposed yeah. to be doing because you're worried about the fight that you had with your partner or what's going to happen when your mum has her mammogram next week or whatever it might be. Mm. And so I think allocating a designated time to really like let yourself go full pelt worry as much as you like. Like maybe it's at six o'clock tonight on your walk or yeah. I'm going to give myself 20 minutes or I'm going to set my timer on the phone on my phone and sit here and worry and worry and worry for the next six minutes or whatever it is. And I, I think every time I do it, I often find that I don't actually need the amount of time that I've set myself. I, f- I get like halfway in and I'm like, okay, cool. I'm done with that. But I think the most important thing about worry is identifying whether or not any of it is within your control. And I go through an exercise where you write down your most pressing worries. You list as a percentage, and it's just a guesstimate, like you Mm. don't kind of over-egg it, but list as a percentage how much of it is within your control. So, for example, if one of my worries is getting older, the percentage within my control is 0%. Mm. I cannot stop the tick-tock of the clock. Mm. What I can control is taking pretty good care of myself, Mm -hmm. making sure that I'm up to date with my doctor's checkups, any tests and scans that I need to have, making sure that I'm safe, making sure that I'm healthy. Those are the things that are within my control. So there's just no point about worrying about things that are futile. I'm going to say something that made me really love aging because I have a huge fear of aging, uh, especially working in media You, as a female, you do feel like there's kind of like a ticking time bomb. Uh, and I was listening to a podcast interview with George Clooney, like phenomenal human oh being. But I met him once. Don't. Yeah, in a nightclub in Italy. Don't. I just remembered then when you said tell it. Tell me what, was he a he legend? Was, oh, no. I don't know if I'm allowed to say this. I say this with the greatest love and respect yeah. to him because I think he's a beautiful man. Yeah. He was absolutely shit-faced. Oh. <laughs> like could barely sit up. Good on him though. I know. I mean, looking back now, I'm like, oh, I just remember all of the chicks. Like they were like vulture. Have you seen that amazing film, Promising Young Woman? Yes. With Kerry Mulligan. Phenomenal. It was kind of like the that reverse. in reverse. Yeah. I, he, he felt like prey. Yeah, wow. He looked like prey. There was no shortage of women there. And I say this again with the greatest love and respect, not only to him but to all women, but there were a number of women there that were ready and willing to take advantage of him that night. Wow. And it actually made me really sad. Yeah. I'll send you this podcast of him and I'll put it in the show notes here because he's absolutely unreal. I don't know if you know this, but he invited his 14 closest mates over for dinner one night. And he was like, you know, you put me on a couch when I had nowhere to stay, um, when I didn't get – because he, he's famously shot like 30 pilots and never got picked up. Like he, mm. he made it a bit later in mm-hmm, life. Mm-hmm. And um, he was like, you guys have all been there for me when no one else has. And everybody, the 14 people, we're talking nor- normies here, like two actors, the rest were like moms, dads, teachers, whatever, like all different all different walks of life that have just been nice to him along the way. And he put in a suitcase $1 million each cleared. So he paid the tax on that million dollars and he goes, send your kids to whatever school you want to, pay off your mortgage. This is my way of saying thank you to oh you. Oh, my God, I love what that story. What a legend. Story. But the, the, where I'm cut full circle where he talks about age uh, he was doing a podcast recently and they're like, oh, you look great for your age, you know, you look phenomenal. And he was like, well, it's not it's not exactly how I wanted to age, but the alternative is death, so I'll take it. Yeah. <laughs> and I thought, what a, like how lucky are we to age? What a privilege totally. is it to age? And it's just a nice way of, yeah, flipping it on its Totally. Yeah, on and I bed. think everybody listening to this has lost somebody that they love and I think as soon as you go through something like that, particularly somebody that you lose before their t- their yeah. time, whatever that means, I think anybody understands what a privilege it is to turn another year older. Yeah, a million trillion percent. I do want to quickly touch on eating disorders. Mm. Um, you and I both have a history of eating disorders. As you were reading it, so you were 15 years old, passed mm-hmm. out in the shower. Mm-hmm. I think you like weighed in at 53 kilos. At my worst, I was 47, but you mm-hmm. are a much taller than me. So we're probably a similar yeah. like equivalent of one another and it's super unhealthy. And, yeah, it's just crazy to think um, that it's so common and prevalent. I know. And like I know people listening to this like, yeah, that was my teenage years too. Yeah. So um, yes, that was part of your past, but you also talk about like coming out of it and the like dieting, 
where you're like, okay, I'm going to start on Monday. I'm going to start on Monday. And then you've got this amazing quote that I had to write down and you're like, the fridge is full of kale that you'll eat so quickly that it won't wilt like a bag of dicks. <laughs> Dude. In the sun. That is <laughs> so good. Uh, yeah, can you just share a bit of it? Because I can still, to this day, I'm a nutritionist, mate, mm-hmm. and I can still relate to, all right, on Monday I start. Yes. And, and like, I've got all this, like, I think you said like the gumption on a Monday and you're mm-hmm. like, yeah, I got this. And it gets to Tuesday and you kind of have that sneaky muffin, but, you know, you only have half. Mm-hmm. So that's okay, right? Talk to me about it because I love the way you write about it. So can you share a little bit? Yeah, I mean, and look, I still fall into this trap. So I'm not sitting here like, I've conquered all of the dieting demons. You're making me feel better because I was like, oh, fuck, this is me, this is me. No, I don't have it all together. But what I did for many years was I did that like I was strong on Monday. You wake up, you work out, you drink your lemon water, you're like, I've fucking got this. Yeah. You sail into Monday night, you have your like white fish with your side of greens, you're like, I am literally like Blake Lively. Yeah. That's who I am. Yeah. It's like I've already lost weight. I can see it. Yeah. Yeah. In, the mir- in the mirror, you wake up on Tuesday morning, you're like, I'm hungry as fuck, but I have still got this. Yeah. And then as you say, you know, you get the soup for lunch and Steve behind the counter is like, do you want a bread roll? And you're like, okay, Steve, like it's just one bread roll, like whatever. Yeah. Fast forward that afternoon and you've like raided the cookie jar at work. You've bought bloody a thing of cookies from some kid that was selling them on the street and then you're driving home and you're like, could really do with a glass of red wine. Yeah. And you drive past the bottle shop and you're like, no, I am not drinking until yeah. the weekend. And then within seconds you have like rivaled Daniel Ricardo oh, and dude. done a perfect U-turn and you are in the Shiraz section and you are like, get in my belly. You have ha- antioxidants, hashtag yeah, healthy. Polyphenols, yeah. Exactly. Yep. And like I don't need to tell you how the rest of that night goes or the rest of the week goes. You're like it's all out the window. And so the net result of that is that you've spent maybe a day and a half being good and I understand that podcast is a, not a visual medium but I've got my hands in inverted yeah. commas right now, like being good and then the rest of the week being bad. And and that doesn't feel good emotionally but it also doesn't give you the results that you want. And so what I talk about is embracing every single meal and, and you are so across this as, as a nutritionist as an opportunity to do right by yourself. And doing right by yourself might be having the piece of cheesecake. A hundred percent. I'm not talking think, about eating perfectly. No, and I think it's a it's a it's a lifestyle of like balance as opposed to a diet for That's right. two, two weeks to look like Blake Lively. Like I yeah. think it's more of a it's about like feeling and I always say to people, how do you want to feel? Forget the number on the scales, forget what size you are, like it's all about how you feel. Totally. And I am someone that will always, depending on if I'm travelling or moving, like for some reason people feel like they can judge my weight and they're like, Because oh, you you're look, a nutritionist. You look good or, oh, you've put a bit on. And like I, it's, I've got so used to looking people down the barrel, like straight into their eyes and being like, I feel good. And that's really all that should matter. And the rest of this conversation can yes. piss off right now. Like I love that. Yeah, but I'm just so glad that you wrote a lot about. Yeah, but it is about how you feel. And one of the things that I say is like you should look at each area of your life. So, for example, your career, your home, your relationships, your body, and ask yourself how you want to feel. So, for example, in my body, I want to feel strong, I want to feel flexible, and I want to feel aligned. Mm. They're the they're the three things mm. that's and that can change any day, any week, any month. Right now, that's how I want to feel. So I'm doing a bit of Pilates. I'm doing lots of walking. I'm mm. trying to sit up straight and like look after my posture. If you are constantly making decisions with the emotional GPS of how you want to feel, you almost can't fuck it up. Yeah. It's such a good way to come back to, right? I think so. It wor- well, look, it works for me because it allows me to go, will eating that make me feel X? Will moving like that make me feel Y? Will taking that job make me feel expanded given mm. that's how I know that I want to feel? Yeah. And if the answer is no, then it's probably not the right choice. But, mm. like, I don't know, I th- I, I'm conscious that particularly when talking about body image and I think particularly for women it's all about being light rather than being strong or being small rather than being voluptuous and like my body is my body and do you know what like at 37 I can say I really love my body Mm. like my body's given me two beautiful babies Mm. I like it more than ever and yet 
it probably is in the eyes of society the least desirable that it has ever been. That said, I reckon that no matter what age you are and no matter where you've come from in terms of your size or your weight or your ethnicity or whatever, I reckon we all deserve to look and feel the way that we want to look and feel. A hundred percent. No matter how old you are. And I say that to my husband. He said to me a number of times, he's working out like a demon at the moment. And I said to him, like, have you ever felt exactly the way that you want to feel? Have you ever looked in the mirror? He was complaining to me about his body one day. I said, have you ever looked in the mirror and been like, shit, yeah, I look really good. And he was like, no. And I said, then you deserve to feel like that. So do whatever it takes to feel like that. And that doesn't mean that you can't have a blowout and drink beer and eat chips and that stuff. But, But everybody deserves to feel like that once in their life. And I think most of us will agree that you magically get there. You've probably been the weight that you want to be before. Was your life infinitely better than it is right now? So interesting. Like there's so much to learn, right? Yeah. it's. I, I like the idea as well of like you get to choose how you want to feel and you get to des- you deserve to feel good within yourself. And I think it's really important that people know that you feeling good. Mm-hmm. Like I always say, because I've written a diet book, so I always say to people, I'm always going to be too fat for someone and too skinny for someone else, mm-hmm. so why not I just do whatever the fuck makes me feel good? Yeah, And so totally. that's kind of been my my ethos the whole way. So what feels good for me today might feel different to what, how I'm going to feel in six months' time and therefore I might change something. But okay. I'm okay with that. And I think that's where you've got to march the beat of your own drum, it's not just with body image and whatnot and and how you physically want to feel, but it's also like what lights you up, what makes – like for me, I love yoga. I love Pilates. Pilates. Love Pilates. You know, and so that makes me feel good so I'm going to do more of it, you know, totally. like as opposed to needing some aesthetic that is not – where women it's meant to change heaps. Totally. And I think – it all comes back to the self-worth piece. Like big time. Eat the way that you deserve to feel. Yeah. Move the way that you deserve to feel. Yeah. Like I I honestly, after so many years of interviewing experts and watching the patterns and the trends in the data, I honestly believe that like our self-worth is to blame or our lack of self-worth is to blame for so, so many of our problems. And I think about it kind of like a square. It's like your physical self-worth. So not only how you feel when you look in the mirror, but what you choose to do with and to your body because Mm -hmm. of that Mm -hmm. um, and how you feel in your body and then your emotional self-worth. So like understanding that we're supposed to coexist with all of these different emotions and knowing that they're just different tools for us to be able to operate in the world and but that they deeply affect our behavior mm-hmm. and then our financial self-worth so are you getting paid what you're worth are yeah. you demanding what you're worth do you are you being what Scott Pape from the barefoot investor calls a yeah. postcode povo and spending all of your money to live in a great suburb because you yeah. want to keep up with your friends or are you saving and being clever and getting yourself into the house of your dreams? Yeah. Um, and then uh, spiritual self-worth. And that might be religion or spirituality, but it could also be like your connection to your community or your connection to the environment or mm. to your sexuality. And if you think about those four things on a square, so physical, emotional, financial, spiritual, there's no way to interconnect them all the time without drawing through the middle. And so if you're going to overhaul any area of your self-worth, I like to think about kind of focusing on one of them at a time. Like I'm focusing on this corner this week. This week I'm focusing on like my spirit, which might be my connection to community or whatever it is. But I think that we have to accept that self-worth is something that you have to work on over your lifetime. A hundred percent. Definitely. You never get there. I don't know where there is, but I don't think it exists. Well, and I think it's ever-changing. And I want to ask one more thing about self-worth. We've already gone to time, but I'm like, I have to ask this. No, please do not. I've loved this. I have to ask you about design and vagina. Design of vagina. Talk to me. You saw a documentary. Yes. I saw a documentary on the ABC about labiaplasty. Mm -hmm. So labiaplasty, for anybody listening who doesn't know, it is where you effectively cut off the majority of your labia minora, so the inside lips of your vagina. Mm -hmm. I saw this documentary and I was like, oh, am I supposed to consider that or look like that. And so I spent a couple of years, like I really did my due diligence. I went and met with a couple of different surgeons. I ended up going and seeing the surgeon that I saw in the documentary. Um, 
But, and this is probably not safe for work. So if anybody's listening without headphones, I'd probably advise sticking them in your ears yep, right thank now you, if you can. Thank you. Um, essentially what they do is like they pull out your labia minora yep. and then they like slice the excess off with a scalpel. Like yep. it's pretty quick and easy, but obviously you're under under general anesthetic, incredibly painful to recover from. And one of the things that really kind of hit home for me. I mean, you have to remember that we're rewinding like 15 years. So these days there's so much porn out there Yeah, and I'm not advocating for porn as, you know, a leading form of sexual education for young people. I think that's abhorrent. But what it does do is show you that there is a whole range of genitals, both men's and women's out there, that there are all different colours, shapes, sizes, and that everybody is completely different and that none is better or worse than the other. But all I saw at that point in time, I didn't spend a lot of time staring at vaginas, but the vaginas that I saw were like these perfect kind of Barbie panels. Yeah, Barbie panel, I love it. Right? You know when you like lift up Barbie's skirt and there's nothing there? Yeah. They were these perfect Barbie panels with no extra bits. And, and so I thought that's how I was supposed and to that look. And that would have been porn 15 years ago. Like, totally. Well, and not only that, but like magazines like Penthouse and Playboy, mm-hmm. which showed yeah. bare vaginas, they had to, under law, airbrush that out because that was considered too graphic. Oh, wow. So you could see the Barbie panel with, you know, with or without um, pubic hair, but yeah. you couldn't see any menorah. That wasn't allowed. Got it. So even in those quite explicit magazines where women would, you know, have their legs spread, mm. you they would have to airbrush that out. So everybody looked the same. And so I convinced myself that that was going to make me feel much more confident in the bedroom, that I would be much more desirable to men. And honestly, now it makes me shudder, like looking back as a mother of two little girls, thinking about them ever feeling that they are anything other than perfect exactly as they are. But but thank you so much for sharing that because we know that it's like, this is a plastic, like it's a cosmetic surgery procedure that people are getting done today. It's not like, it's not uncommon. No. You know, you're the first person that's opened up to me about it. So I when I read it in the book and texted you quickly and said, hey, are you comfy last night? Yeah. You're like, yeah, 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 sure. So that's where I really value you sharing that. And I think it comes back perfectly to your message about self-worth and like mm. valuing and having your own back and loving yourself for who you are. Is that like coming to the end of this pod, is that your like if you said that there was in yogs, we've got this word for purpose, dharma, mm. like the dharma of this book, would you say it is like have your own back, love who you are, you know? Yeah. I think I think my calling is to help women stop sabotaging themselves mm. and to empower them to become their own BFF and supercharge their self-worth. For oh, them to understand yeah. that they their self-worth is not correlated with the size of their pants or how many followers they have on Instagram or how many pairs of expensive shoes they own or how much money they have in the bank, none of that has anything to do with how worthy you are as a human being and that's what I hope this book does. Well, Supercharge Your Self-Worth, I think that's your next book title, mate. <laughs> uh, this book is a dream. By the time we release this podcast, it will officially be out. So I'm yes. going to have the um, the in the show notes, I'm going to put links to buy the book as well. Casey, you, you are a total dream. I feel so lucky I got to meet you on this pod. And please, like, keep me posted because you are, it is one of those books you read and you're like, I want Casey to be my best friend. <laughs> so please stay in touch with me because I now would like you to be my friend, please. Oh, Matt, that would make me so happy. <laughs> Consider it done. Big love. That's a wrap on another episode of Fearlessly Failing. As always, thank you to our guests. And let's continue the conversation on Instagram. I'm at Yummo Lollaberry. This potty, my word for podcast, is available on all streaming platforms. I'd love it if you could subscribe, rate and comment. And of course, spread the love. Mm-hmm.